Our reading this evening is the first chapter of the first epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Thessalonians. So, 1 Thessalonians and chapter 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labour of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were ensamples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia, for from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to Godward is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. As ever we trust that the Lord will add his own special blessing to the reading of his infallible word. Amen. Well, this evening we're commencing a new series of studies in Paul's two epistles to the Thessalonians. And before we begin to study chapter 1 of this first epistle, it may be beneficial to consider some background information regarding the two epistles, and especially the reasons why they may have been written in the first place. Now, Thessalonica was an ancient city of Macedonia in northern Greece. At one time, it was called Thermae or Therma, but around 315 BC, it was renamed as Thessalonica by a king, King Cassander of Macedon, Thessalonica being his wife's name, who happened to be a half-sister of Alexander the Great. And we know from the Acts of the Apostles that Paul and his party visited Thessalonica on his second missionary journey, as we find it recorded in Acts chapter 17, and verses 1 to 14. Acts 17, verses 1 to 14, and I'm going to read those verses to you now. Now when they, that is Paul, Silas, and probably Timothy, had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures, opening and alleging 
that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas and of the devout Greeks a great multitude and of the chief women not a few. But the Jews which believed not moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser salt and gathered a company and set all the city on an uproar and assaulted the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also, whom Jason hath received, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. And when they had taken security of Jason and of the other, they let them go. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. Therefore many of them believed, also of honourable women, which were Greeks, and of men, not a few. But when the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the word of God was preached of Paul at Berea, they came thither also, and stirred up the people. And then immediately the brethren sent away Paul to go, as it were, to the sea. But Silas and Timotheus abode there still. And they that conducted Paul brought him unto Athens, and receiving a commandment unto Silas and Timotheus for to come to him with all speed, they departed. So we have there an account of what took place in uh, Thessalonia. It was uh, not very a long period of time that Paul spent there. We know that he spent three Sabbath days reasoning with the Jews in their synagogue, and it's possible that he was forced to leave before he could spend a fourth Sabbath there. We don't know for sure how long it was before he was spirited away to Berea. We do know that those Jews who opposed Paul in Thessalonica followed him to Berea and stirred up the people there. So much so that it was decided that Paul should be escorted to relative safety in Athens. And it was while he was at Athens that he sent Timothy to see how the new believers in Thessalonica were getting on. We know this from something we're going to study later, from chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians, verses 1 and 2, which read thus, Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone, and sent Timotheus, our brother, a minister of God, and our fellow labourer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith. In due course, Timothy met up with Paul again. It was probably in, in Corinth. And it's felt that it was the news that he received then from Timothy that prompted Paul to write his first epistle to the Thessalonians, addressing the problems which were reportedly prevalent in that young Thessalonian church and, and later on 
receiving reports of further or continuing problems in the church, Paul was led, after just a brief interlude, to write his second epistle to them. And it appears that the main problem that had arisen amongst the saints at Thessalonica was to do with the Lord's return, when it would be, and how to prepare for it. And we shall find more in these two epistles to the Thessalonians about the doctrine of the last things, or eschatology, than is found anywhere else in the scriptures. Well, after that relatively brief introduction, we can now begin our study of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 in earnest, beginning with verse 1, which reads thus, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Whereas we generally identify ourselves at the end of our letters, it was the custom in Paul's day to begin by stating whom a letter was from. And we see that Paul associated both Silvanus, also known as Silas, and Timothy with this first epistle. Paul was the actual author, but he wanted the saints at Thessalonica to know that the sentiments that he was expressing were shared by Silas and Timothy, both of whom were with him when he had visited the Thessalonians in the first place. And as we've already seen this evening, Timothy had since visited them again. Now notice how Paul describes the church of the Thessalonians as being in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. This must be true of any true church. For true faith in God the Father and having the Lord Jesus Christ as their only Saviour and Redeemer must be true of any who claim to be true believers. Sadly, there are many churches today that are not in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that what Paul desires for those saints at Thessalonica is that they may continue to know the grace of God and the peace of God. He wrote, Grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful thing it is if we know both the continuing grace of God and the continuing peace of God. We are saved by grace, we are kept by grace. We have peace with God, and if we walk with our Saviour, then we shall continue to know that peace that passeth all understanding. And this is what Paul wanted. This is what he desired for the Thessalonian believers. Paul and his companions were men of prayer. And amongst those for whom they regularly prayed were the saints at Thessalonica. Paul wrote this, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. And here's a question this evening for us to answer. Do we regularly pray for believers in other fellowships? And do we thank God for them? It's only right and proper that we should pray for those in our own families and for our own local church families, but how often do we thank God 
for brothers and sisters in Christ elsewhere and pray that they might know God's blessing on them. We see that Paul remembered what he had heard in reports about the Thessalonian saints when he wrote these words. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labour of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. One commentator has pointed out that this is the first occasion in any of Paul's epistles where he collectively refers to those three graces of faith and hope and charity. For the word translated here as love is that Greek word agape. And we know that's elsewhere translated as charity, as in that very famous 13th chapter of Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. And the term patience of hope refers to their patient enduring of affliction for the Saviour's sake. Now, verse 4 of 1 Thessalonians, Thessalonians 1 is just a short verse, but it contains a word that some believers have struggled to come to terms with. And it's the word election. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. Paul was convinced that those saints in Thessalonica were true brethren, true believers, beloved brethren, truly belonging to the family of God. He believed that they had been chosen by God before the foundation of the world. Now, we could define election as God's choosing of people to be saved from the consequences of their sins, irrespective of any qualities that those people might have that would predispose them to being chosen by God. This doctrine is unpopular with some people for two main reasons. Firstly, it gives occasion to people to accuse God of being unjust or unfair. They say that it's unfair that God chooses some to salvation and others. Secondly, some people feel that if man does have free will, then it must be man who chooses whether or not to get right with God. It's his choice or her choice and not God's. Well, we'll consider those objections in just a moment, but I have to confess that when, as a very young Christian, I was first taught about election, I struggled to come to terms with it. I thought that I had made a decision for Christ only to discover that it was in fact the other way round. However, in both Old and New Testaments, the doctrine of election is clearly seen both on a national level and on a personal level. But the principle is the same, namely that God is a sovereign God who chooses nations and individuals according to his own pleasure. And I now struggle to understand those who refuse to accept this. Now before we consider just a few of the many portions of scripture which clearly show the doctrine of election, I'd like to deal with those two objections that I mentioned a moment ago. Firstly, the objection of those who 
who say that it's unfair that God chooses some to salvation and not others. Now, there is no obligation on God to save anyone at all. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and all of us deserve to be punished eternally for our sin. If God is gracious, and if he chooses some to salvation, this is more than any of us deserve. Those who do not repent of their sin and remain unconverted will, by their very own choice, go to a place of punishment. It's their own sin that will condemn them. Secondly, the objection that if man has free will, that it must be man who chooses whether or not to get right with God. Well, we haven't time this evening to fully consider the doctrine of irresistible grace. But suffice it to say that God never ever forces anyone to get right with him against their will. Instead, in his great love and mercy, he makes the unwilling willing. He draws them to himself. As the Lord Jesus himself said, no man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. As I said earlier, there are many portions of scripture which clearly show the doctrine of election, but because of time constraints, we are only going to consider a selection this evening. Firstly, we can look at verses four, uh, sorry, three to six of Ephesians chapter one. That's Ephesians one, verses three to six, which read thus. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. So here we see very clearly that believers are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Before they were even born, believers are predestinated, meaning that God has predetermined those whom he will set his love upon and whose souls he would save. We can turn next to Romans 8, Romans 8 verses 28 to 33, which read thus, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. 
Now, some people who are very reluctant to accept the doctrine of election will try to tell you that when the Bible tells us how God foreknows people, it means that God knew those who would accept the gospel and who would not, and that it was on the basis of that foreknowledge of who would accept the gospel that he chose or predestinated them to salvation. But that is to misunderstand the meaning of foreknowledge and to fail to take into account other scriptures which show us that no person ever comes to faith without first being quickened by God the Holy Spirit. We are all dead in trespasses and sins and we will remain so unless and until we are regenerated by God the Holy Spirit. It is true that God does know who will respond to the gospel and who will not because God knows those whom he will quicken. However, the foreknowledge of God is more than just his knowing who will respond to the gospel. The word translated as foreknow in verse 29 of Romans 8 is elsewhere translated as foreordained. In verses 18 to 20 of 1 Peter 1, for example, which read thus, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. God the Father not only knew that he would send his Son into the world to save his people from their sins, he actually foreordained it. It was all part of the plan devised by the Godhead to redeem those elected to eternal life. To foreknow and to choose can be synonymous. Moving on, we see that in Romans 9, Paul explains how God chooses people on whom he will set his love before those people are even born. Referring to the children of Isaac and Rebekah, namely Jacob and Esau, Paul wrote these words which are recorded in Romans 9 verses 11 to 13. For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And foreseeing that people would object to him, pointed out this, Paul went on to write these words. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. And 
foreseeing even further objections, we see that Paul continued with these words. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honour and another unto dishonour? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Well, this evening we've considered the doctrine of election at some length, principally, principally because it is so very important and because it's often opposed. But we must now move on to verse 5 of this evening's study passage, which reads thus. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. When the gospel is preached, it's preached using words. Words based upon or derived from or direct quotations from the word of God. Paul wrote to the saints at Rome about how believers are saved and how not everyone who hears that gospel that is preached does believe it. Romans 10 verses 13 to 17 read as follows. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then? shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah said, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Paul knew that those to whom he was writing at Thessalonica were true believers, part of the elect, in light of their response to the gospel. Paul preached the gospel at Thessalonica with power, the power given to him by the Holy Spirit, and both he and his companions were assured that those who responded to the gospel at Thessalonica were now true believers. <clears throat> and Paul reminded those Thessalonian believers that they had been able to recognize when Paul and his party were witnessing to them in their city that they had given them no reason to suppose that they were not genuine in all their dealings with them, and had not sought to take advantage of them in any way. Paul wrote this, Ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. Paul's opponents had sought to malign him and his companions, possibly accusing them of having only a passing, a fleeting, a temporary interest in those who had responded to the gospel. 
but we shall see as we proceed both in this chapter and further on in the epistle that that was very far from being the case Paul goes on to write these words and ye became followers of us and of the Lord having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost which tells us something of the cost to the Thessalonians of their acceptance of the gospel they threw in their lot as it were with Paul and his party and became willing to follow their example which in turn meant following the Lord Jesus himself we read that they received the word in much affliction meaning that it had been no easy thing for them to become followers of Christ there had been a price to pay ridicule and persecution those Jews who had opposed Paul so vigorously would no doubt have also sought to trouble those in their city who had put their trust in Christ as a result of Paul's ministry in this country at the present time at least those who put their trust in Christ may be ridiculed by some they may lose friends they may even become estranged from members of their own families but they are unlikely to suffer the sort of persecution that many New Testament believers were subject to however it's true that in some countries today there can still be a, a great price to be paid by those who put their trust in Christ even death and we should therefore often remember persecuted brethren in prayer Hebrews 13 verse 3 tells us to do this remember them that are in bonds as bound with them and them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body but notice that though the Thessalonian believers had been badly treated they were joyful for Paul described them as such having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost it was James who proposed that believers should count it all joy when their faith is tested including by persecution but I've often wondered how we would respond if we were to be in that same situation it's one thing to persevere but surely it's only with God's help that we could rejoice as did those Thessalonian saints with joy of the Holy Ghost now the resilience and grace under fire of the saints at Thessalonica was such that the news of their witness had spread far and wide we see this do we not from verses 7 and 8 of our study passage which read thus so that ye were ensamples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia for from you sounded out the word of the Lord not only in Macedonia and Achaia but also in every place your faith to God would be spread abroad so that we need not to speak anything Macedonia and Achaia were both Roman provinces and cities in Macedonia mentioned in the New Testament include Berea, Thessalonica which we know was the Macedonian capital, Philippi, Amphipolis, Apollonia, Neapolis and Nicopolis. Achaia was immediately below Macedonia and cities in this province mentioned in the New Testament include Athens, Corinth 
and Cancrea. Looking at modern maps, it seems to me that Macedonia covered what we would now call northern Greece and Achaia southern Greece. And so what Paul was saying was that the faith and the witness of those saints at Thessalonica was apparent not only throughout the whole of Greece, but beyond those regions as well. So much so that Paul and his associates didn't need to speak about it, that is to tell others about it. When Paul and others who were spreading the gospel visited some new place, no doubt they spoke of other places that they had visited and the reaction of those who had heard the gospel in those places. But what Paul was explaining here in his letter was that they didn't need to do this in respect of the Thessalonian believers because news of their faith and witness had already travelled far and wide. And surely that must have been a great encouragement to Paul and those who laboured with him. And we see that Paul went on to write these words. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering we had unto you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. The reports received by Paul from various sources testified to the fact that though his stay in Thessalonica had been brief, the preaching of the gospel there had resulted in the salvation of souls. Many had turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now, notice those words, what manner of entering in we had unto you. Since you might recall, I said earlier that Paul's Jewish opponents in Thessalonica had sought to malign him and his party, possibly accusing them of having only a passing, a fleeting, a temporary interest in those who had responded to the gospel and other false accusations as well. But Paul is here reminding those saints at Thessalonica that the conduct of himself and his companions towards them when they were with them had been exemplary. They had not taken advantage of them in any way. And as we shall see in our next study, they had in fact gone out of their way to avoid any such accusations. They had preached the gospel in sincerity and God had done a mighty work in Thessalonica. Many had turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now, we know that many false gods were worshipped in Thessalonica and that these false gods were represented by images of idols. And it was from the worship of those false deities that the saints at Thessalonica had been delivered. They had turned from the worship of false gods and now worshipped the true and living God. There is only one true God, only one living God. Any others are false and imaginary. Now notice carefully that Paul writes of serving, serving the true and living God. And we need to remember that those of us who profess faith in Christ and worship the only true God are called to serve him. As someone once put it, we are saved to serve. And so this question arises for us this evening. Do we see ourselves, do we view ourselves as servants of God? As those whose lives are to be spent fully in God's service? In Thessalonica, as in much of the ancient world, idolatry was rife. 
And those who heard the gospel were told that they must turn from idolatry to serve the true God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And although in our own country idolatry is not so overt, there is hidden idolatry and all manner of other sin that will condemn those people who commit it and consign them to hell unless they repent and are converted. The sinner's only hope is the one and only saviour of men and women and boys and girls, the Lord Jesus Christ. So this question arises also this evening, have you put your trust in him yet and his, in his atoning work on the cross? Well, we now come to the final verse that we're considering this evening, verse 10, which tells us that after having turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, the Thessalonian saints were now, and I quote, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Now, in beginning to consider how we are all awaiting the Lord's return from heaven, I wouldn't want us to overlook what we are also reminded of here, namely that God's son, the Lord Jesus Christ, was raised from the dead by his father and that he has also delivered us from the wrath to come. Those of us who by the grace of God have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and in him alone as our saviour will be spared the wrath of God. God is a righteous and just God who has said that he will punish sin. On the cross, the saviour bore the wrath of God against sin for all those who put their trust in him. But those who refuse to repent of their sin and to trust in Christ alone will have to bear the wrath of God themselves. Have you put your trust in Christ alone? Or will you be required to bear the wrath of God yourself? Now with regard to Christ's resurrection from the dead, this is vital to Christianity. You cannot be a Christian and not believe in the resurrection of the Saviour from the dead. In his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15, Paul explains just how vital this doctrine is. Verses 12 onwards of that chapter read as follows. Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then our preaching is vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we have found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised? And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which have fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are all men most miserable. But, one of the great buts in scripture, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive, but every man in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward 
they that are Christ's at his coming. How we praise God the Father for raising his son from the dead and that our faith is not in vain. Now, it may interest you to know that all three persons of the Trinity were involved in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, including Jesus himself, giving us further proof of the Trinity should we need it. But that's another message for another day. Well, this evening, before we close, I want us to briefly consider how we are awaiting the return of the Lord Jesus from heaven when he comes to take his bride, the church, to our heavenly home. As I mentioned earlier, it appears that the main problem that had arisen amongst the saints at Thessalonica was to do with the Lord's return. Believers there were wondering when it would be and how should they prepare for it. And in the last verse of this first chapter of 1 Thessalonians, we see Paul, as it were, introducing the subject. Now, as I also said earlier, we shall find more in these two epistles to the Thessalonians about the doctrine of the last things, or eschatology as it's known, than is found anywhere else in the scriptures. Here, in the last verse of our study, Paul just touches on the subject, as it were, reminding believers that we are awaiting the return of the Lord Jesus from heaven, often referred to as his second coming. Now, there are those who are preoccupied with this subject, spending much of their time debating what will happen and when. And no doubt there are some of us, perhaps, who do not think enough about these things. But of this one thing we can all be assured, the Lord is coming again. And we are to be ready for his coming at any time. We will consider this subject in greater depth as we proceed in our studies in the two letters. But for now, let us determine to so live our lives that none of us will be ashamed at his coming. Amen. Amen. Feel free to contact us at Sovereign Grace Church in Tiverton. Email us at grace2seekers at gmail.com. That's grace2seekers at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can visit our website at www.sovereigngracereformedchurch.co.uk.